the best of the Jewish views on civil partnerships for heterosexual couples. We remind ourselves of the headline-making story about Rebecca and Charlie. Jess Robinson tells us about her time on Britain's Got Talent and the impressions she made on the judges. And we hear about the mobile matzah bakery from Sivos Hashem. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Environment Secretary has told hundreds of Conservative Friends of Israel supporters that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Michael Gove made the comment during his keynote speech at the CFI event in Manchester. Mr Gove also said that the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, chose death squads over Democrats and that when there's hatred directed towards Jews, darker times follow. But the senior Tory also praised two Labour MPs, Joan Ryan and Ian Austin, for standing up for Jewish people's right to self-determination. The collapse of the airline Monarch left Jewish passengers stranded on the eve of Sukkot. Many, due to fly between the UK and Israel, were caught out. The airline, the UK's fifth largest, filed for administration last weekend. With many other airlines' flights full, it seems a lot of passengers will be stuck at home, while those already in Israel should be brought back to the UK at no cost to them. Those with flight-only bookings, though, after the 16th of October, won't be at all protected and will need to make their own arrangements. A gay couple who are set to marry next year have spoken of the huge leap forward taken by liberal Judaism in introducing inclusive marriage documents. That means prenuptial agreements known as ketubot will be offered to those who prefer not to use conventional bride and groom terms. They were written by liberal Judaism's rabbi Mark Solomon, who said it was important to be helpful, sensitive, compassionate and forward-thinking for the needs of our time. Steve Lawton and Paul Bloomfield, who will marry in 2018, said they are delighted with the move. A video of a Holocaust survivor explaining why she forgave the infamous Nazi doctor Josef Mengele for experimenting on her has gone viral over the past few weeks. 83-year-old Eva Moses Kaur and her twin sister Miriam were sent to Auschwitz from Romania in 1944. Mengele was known as the Angel of Death for his cruel experiments on prisoners in the camp. The Kaur twins were injected with toxic substances. And finally, Amazon is expanding in Israel. The company is setting up Alexa shopping teams in two cities, Haifa and Tel Aviv. Alexa is a digital personal assistant, which has been developed by Amazon. It allows users to shop online using voice commands. Amazon announced that it wants to hire scientists, software engineers and product managers for the two offices. That's the news this week. Here's the sport with Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Tennis star Dudi Seller has been praised for showing his respect to Israel and the Jewish people after he retired early from his quarter-final match in China in order to avoid playing on Yom Kippur. Dr Yoni Yarom, chairman of the Israeli Tennis Association, said he decided to leave the court as a sign of respect for his values and the values of Israel and the Jewish people, showing his commitment to the state of Israel. Israeli Olympic winning medalist Yarden Gerby has announced her shock retirement, saying she no longer had the energy to compete. The 28-year-old won a bronze medal in the judo competition at last summer's Games in Rio and said, I achieved everything I wanted and dreamed of and winning the Olympic medal made me feel complete. And finally, 
London Lions are just seven wins away from playing on a hallowed turf at Wembley Stadium after they beat Malesbury Victoria to reach the first round proper of the FA Vars. They next face Clapton, who they host on the 22nd of October. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of the best of the Jewish Views 5777. I'm Phil Dave, but it's not all about the past. Let's look at the current. We're going to start off this week's episode with a look through your copy of the Jewish News. Joining me to go through it is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and Online Editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. The front page for this week reads, what kind of world are they living in? And of course, this is referring to the hideous news that came out of Las Vegas this week. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific, isn't it? Stephen Paddock, a 64-year-old man who's described as a multi-millionaire property developer, so someone you would think actually you know, has it all, carried out America's worst mass shooting in its history. 59 people dead, more than 500 badly injured, they were gunned down hell you know a hell of bullets over them while they were enjoying a country music festival it's just absolutely hideous the photograph on the front page shows children looking over these candles holding vigil obviously for the people who have lost their lives in this very tragic devastating event and the jewish community around the world has joined together in calling for tougher gun control laws. And it does make you sort of question, doesn't it, really, that America's right to bear arms, it's in the headlines again now, is this the world that we want to be living in? Do we want to live in a world where people have a right to have a gun? Or should they be better controlled? And quite frankly, why this man had countless numbers of guns I mean we're talking I think what's the latest 40 50 guns yeah I believe he had in excess of 40 firearms yeah I mean it's absolutely incredible how did he even have the license to purchase that many guns that suggests someone who's you know arming a small army not someone who's using them recreationally for hunting or for his own protection well potentially the problem with this and this is sort of to do with the gun laws of america is that my understanding i don't understand it completely because thank goodness i've never actually had the longing to look into firearms ownership but i believe that one doesn't necessarily need a license to own a firearm in certain parts of America, if not all of America. And if that's the case, there is actually no way of monitoring what people are doing in terms of how many firearms they are buying. But surely, even if they just buy one, that could pose a threat and a danger. There is nothing to say that no one has the right to protect themselves. But unfortunately, I think that it's treated as quite a black and white case. It's either, well, if they didn't have guns, well, then there wouldn't be all this mass shooting. But let's not overlook the fact that we have our own horrors on our own shores where we've got acid attacks, we've got knife crime. So even if firearms weren't in the equation, it doesn't necessarily mean the problem would just go away, does it, Jack? No, it doesn't mean it will go away, especially because Stephen Paddock, the man who carried out this massacre, when he bought the guns, he fulfilled all the background checks. The shop that sold it to him came out and said that there didn't appear to be anything wrong. So, you know, when, when a mass murderer can legally buy these kind of weapons, you've got to ask, is there a problem fundamentally with society that even the background checks don't stop it happening? I think the, the biggest problem in the US is that the Constitution was written hundreds of years ago when the population was much smaller and the issue of having a small militia was you know, a relevant thing. Now it's a country of 300 million people 
and there's 300 million guns estimated in the US. So, you know, this is a major, major problem. And every time one of these massacres happened, the gun debate kind of comes back to the surface and then it dies down again when politics kind of takes over. I think that it's a problem that is not necessarily going to go away and I'm fairly sure, unfortunately, we'll see come up time and time again. But who knows, maybe with a bit of luck, maybe something will give. OK, having a look at some of the other stories that are making the paper this week and Monarch Airlines go Machullah. Now, again, not necessarily something you'd be forgiven for thinking is necessarily a Jewish story, but of course it has affected many people travelling to and from Israel. This has happened literally at the worst time, hasn't it, Phil? I mean, people are trying to go away for Sukkot or have been away indeed for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and want to come back. And now Monarch has gone, as you said, Mechula, and people are stranded or they can't go away at all. So families can't be reunited. And in that sense, it has impacted the Jewish community. But also, it's a sad thing that in these days, an airline, which on the surface seems to be doing pretty well, the fact that it's got 100,000 passengers stranded worldwide suggests it's doing quite well, should go under. So I think there has to be some questions asked about that as well. There does, and it obviously is clearly something that the public are not necessarily going to know about the affairs of Monarch as an organisation in terms of what actually led them to this point. The one interesting thing, of course, is that they are calling this the biggest rescue operation of repatriation since peacetime. And that is an extraordinary claim. You know, we're talking about how many stranded people around the world trying to get them back home again. It does seem quite a large scale problem, this. It is a large scale problem and uh, I saw it kind of on the ground because my mum is a travel agent and when I got up on the morning that this happened she'd already been on the phones trying to sort out people's holidays and rescue people from abroad let's just say for about an hour she, she you know it's really weighing her down so it is it is a massive problem and I think it shows that these big airlines you know they have hundreds of thousands of passengers a year they're not too big to fail. You know, it, somebody could have stepped in and tried to save them, but they didn't. Um, they went down. And the short term effect is that people have lost their holidays. Really does seem quite extraordinary. OK, well, there you go. Let's have a look at one of the other stories making the papers this week. And someone who probably could have saved something would have been a little bit of embarrassment on Coronation Street's behalf. What's occurred with their only Jewish character? Yes, Nicola Rubenstein. Apparently, she wanted to help out her 13-year-old neighbour, Summer Spellman, by making a traditional Friday night meal and try and educate her a little bit about Jewish culture. Well, that's really lovely, isn't it? But Except... Someone maybe didn't educate Coronation Street on Jewish culture because... Because this Friday night... Why is this Friday night different to all other Friday nights? It was actually Col Nidre. It was Yom Oops. Kippur. It was the start of the fast. And if anything, no one would be sipping their chicken soup and eating their roast chicken much as we would have liked to have should have been fasting. That's the premise of it. I think considering that Coronation Street goes out roughly an hour after the fast started this year, that probably was pretty unfortunate timing but anyway doesn't matter look i know coronation street they would never have done it on purpose it was just a bit of an unfortunate oversight have the bosses at coronation street said anything yes they actually said about the blunder that nicola is not particularly religious and nicola doesn't follow all the jewish traditions which makes me wonder was she the best person to make the friday night dinner in the first place maybe they should have got the chabad rabbi in to the cory set for that week but anyway look it was a nice try it was a nice thought and 
I think it's a nice thing to see a Jewish character on a soap. But let's try and not do these things backwards, yeah? Well, maybe, who knows, Coronation Street after this might employ some Jewish researchers, but there you go. But it's, as you say, a nice touch all the same. Now, I think that we've got time for one more story, and I believe that you've managed to get an interview, I'm very excited about this, with uh, Julius Dean, no less. Who's uh, that? Oh, come on, Phil, you've got no idea who he is. I haven't got a You're clue. You're not down with the millennials, however... For those of you who do know who he is, he happens to have almost 10 million followers across Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat. He's one of these big social media personalities. I think they're called influencers. He's a mega influencer. And he does the most incredible eye-popping magic tricks. Definitely worth checking him out on YouTube if you haven't seen him before. He does things like biting into a coin and then making half of it disappear and then it just sort of flips back just suddenly appears again or he'll look at a box of matches and they'll just erupt into flames and he does some pretty gory tricks as well including putting a pair of earphones through his neck and and strange things like that and he also makes his Israeli grandmother scream and think that her mobile phone's about to erupt into flames. And it's all quite funny and it's done in good jest and he's got a nice sense of humour with it. Quite watchable. Anyway, we got to chat to him. I managed to catch him between flights from Vegas to LA and on his way to seeing his agents. He's a very, very busy boy now. Former JFS pupil and basically making a good career for himself out of this. Excellent. Well, I'm sure we look forward to reading that. Thank you very much. I'm still absolutely none the wiser, but I shall go and educate myself now and go and watch some of his YouTube videos. And hopefully by next week's edition, I will be up to scratch. And as you say, down with the millennials. Thank you both. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday, ordinarily, but of course this week it's a bit earlier, across London. Or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, it was towards the start of the year that we first heard from our first guest for this particular episode of The Best of the Jewish Views. Rebecca Steinfeld and her partner, Charles Caden, made the headlines after they became the first couple to fight for the right to become the first heterosexual couple to receive a civil partnership. Well, their story not only made the Jewish press, but the national press as well, as after months and months of trials and tribulations, unfortunately, they still were not successful in their attempt. However, they continue to fight the good fight, and this particular interview is right at the peak of that, when I got the chance to speak to Rebecca herself to find out why this meant so much to her and to Charles. I started by asking Rebecca to give us a bit of background to the story. So my partner Charlie and I decided in November 2013 that we wanted to formalise our commitment to each other. And we had one of those very serious conversations about how we wanted to cement our relationship and express our love. And it was very much in terms that we already use. So we already see each other as partners in life and we really want to be partners in law. At the time, there was a case that was going through the European Court of Human Rights that was challenging what was then the twin ban on same-sex marriage and on mixed-sex civil partnerships in England and Wales. And we thought that case would be successful. So we decided that we would become civil partners because at that time that seemed something 
not only desirable for us, but also possible. And I'm afraid to say we put an announcement in the Jewish Chronicle and not the Jewish News. Um, <laughs> That's and okay. You, you and so many others, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to announce our forthcoming civil partnership, unfortunately, the government only legalized same-sex marriage. Now, of course, that long overdue and very hard-won victory should be absolutely celebrated um, and I don't think that the social significance of same-sex marriage can be can be overstated and we campaigned within the Jewish community actually for marriage equality with some friends of ours we set up a, a group called British Jews for Equal Marriage so we were thrilled that finally there was equal marriage but we were disappointed that there still wasn't full relationship equality in the UK because civil partnerships were still only limited to same-sex couples and so we decided to take action essentially we went to Chelsea Register Office and we tried to give notice of our intention to form a civil partnership. But we were asked by the registrars if we were the same sex when we said no. They turned us away and asked us to leave. And that was that. And so then we sought legal advice and went to an amazing solicitor who, quite passionate feminist solicitor, who'd helped the journalist Caroline Criada Perez um, challenge the Bank of England to keep women on UK banknotes. She's responsible for, for winning that case. And we'll have Jane Austen on the forthcoming £10 note. So we knew she was a kindred spirit and um, we approached her and she told us that legally speaking, we could go against both the register office and also the government. So in December 2014, we um, lodged our case and we were given permission at that point to go ahead against the government only because it was deemed that the register office was just abiding by the law, essentially. And so that's what we did. We went to the high court in January 2016 and sadly lost our case but we were given leave to appeal and we did and our case was heard in the court of appeal in last November and then the, the verdict just came out a couple of days ago and it went against us but it went against us very narrowly it was a split decision two to one and on so many points the judges agreed with us and with each other they all three of them said that um, we were being treated differently because of our sexual orientation that that affects our family and private life all three of them said that this argument that we often hear of you could just get married, that that's not a sufficient justification because for us, we are conscientiously objecting to marriage because of its symbolism and its cultural associations, which we find deeply problematic. Well, I, I um, do need to ask you about that, Rebecca, because there'll be so many people listening to this right now thinking, why not just get married? Yeah, I mean, we, we hear that a lot. What's gratifying is that the judges recognised that that's not the right response, that for whatever reasons, lots of people feel profoundly uncomfortable with marriage. I mean, at the same time, of course, marriage is, for a great many people, a beautiful, very meaningful expression of their love for one another. And we respect and appreciate that. But at the same time, for lots of reasons, different people don't feel comfortable with marriage. They may have had a very negative experience of marriage themselves, either their own previous marriage or their parents' marriage. They might feel that it's too establishment. They might have deep reservations about the religious associations. Um, for us, it's slightly different. For us, it's to do with the patriarchal history of marriage and the fact that that patriarchal history lingers on in certain legal elements of marriages. It still exists in this country today, such as the fact that in the marriage register, there's still only space for the fathers of the parties being married and not the mothers despite the fact that David Cameron pledged in response to a campaign against that, that he would introduce marriage registers that included both mothers and fathers. But that's not the case yet. In law, you're still husband and wife. And those terms have associations with them that we don't feel comfortable with. And since there are already civil partnerships, they already exist. They're a modern institution. 
simple civil contract. We're not asking for anything to be created from scratch just to suit our very specific preferences. All we're asking for is just that they're open to everybody. And to do that, all the government needs to do is remove six little words from the Civil Partnership Act 2004 that states that eligibility for civil partnerships is dependent on being of the same sex. That's it. It's so simple. There is obviously a Jewish side to you both because you've obviously said that you announced it in the Jewish Chronicle that your Mm -hmm. intention was to become civil partners. Mm -hmm. Is there any communication, say, with your synagogue? Have you maybe thought of some sort of spiritual service from that sense that might be able to satisfy the need to at least establish that you are joined together somehow? I mean, I think that there are two issues here. One is enabling couples to express their love for each other and formalize their relationships in ways that are meaningful to them and in keeping with their values. And I think that creating our own ceremony, however we did it, whether we did it in conjunction with a particular synagogue or rabbi, or whether we created our own ceremony, which is in fact what we did when when we um, had our daughter in 2015, we designed our own Brit Shalom baby welcoming ceremony for her that sort of fused a lot of our Jewish cultural heritage with our liberal values. And it was really beautiful. To fulfill that side of things, of course, we could we could do something like that. But the crucial point here is that we would still be legally and financially unprotected. We wouldn't have a legal status through doing a service like that. Mm. And there are three million cohabiting mixed-sex couples in the UK with 2 million dependent children. It is the fastest growing family type. And those couples lack financial and legal protections, which is particularly an issue for women because in general, it's women who tend to give up work full-time or entirely when they have children. There's a gender pay gap. So often you can have situations where women in these long-term cohabiting relationships are much more financially vulnerable and weak. And if the relationship ends in separation or the death of one of the parties, as they inevitably will at some point, they can find themselves really screwed. You know, it's one of these things where a ceremony is one thing, but having that legal status and recognition and protection is just as, if not more important. And that's what civil partnerships could do, opening them up to everybody. It wouldn't necessarily be a solution for for all cohabiting couples because some cohabiting couples on principle, don't want the state to be involved in their private affairs. Some of these cohabiting couples are under the misapprehension that there is some kind of common law marriage in this country and that they're sort of automatically protected and, and are not aware that they need to enter into a marriage or a civil partnership in order to have that protection. But for those of us who are keenly aware that we're vulnerable and really do want to have protection and legal status, but for whatever reason, don't feel comfortable with marriage they should have the option of a civil partnership and those kinds of protections. They shouldn't be left vulnerable because they don't feel that marriage is right for them. Rebecca Steinfeld talking to me there about her and her partner Charlie's battle to try and legally be recognised to have civil partnership status. Fascinating discussion that was. And of course, you may recall the storm that it made in the mainstream media as well at the time. You are listening to the best of The Jewish Views 5777, a look back over the past Jewish years programming as we celebrate entering 5778. A very happy new year to you and your family from all of us here at The Jewish Views and still to come on this edition. We will be reminding ourselves what happened when Diana Toman went along to speak to Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem about their mobile matzah bakery. 
And we will also have a delicious recipe from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. But first, Britain's Got Talent never seems to be too far from our television screens. And you may remember in last year's offering, the impressionist Jess Robinson. Well, our very own arts editor, Kate Fulton, got the chance to speak to Jess. And she started by asking her to tell us about her performing arts background. I went to school where we did lots of acting and singing and and all of that. And I left school when I was 18. I was meant to go to university and do a music degree, but I didn't go. <laughs> so I just moved to London and sort of started seeking my fortune, as it was. Lived in North London, where lots of my family are, and just started sort of learning on the hoof and performing from there and doing all of the day jobs as well. <laughs> oh, and you're a nice Jewish girl from North London then? Yeah, well, when I was about four, mum and dad and I obviously moved out to a little village in Hertfordshire, which was beautiful and gorgeous. And they're still there. But my grandma's in Hendon. I've got a sister in Barnet and a sister in Mill Hill. So yeah, everyone's Lovely. everyone's around there. And what's your instrument, apart from your voice, which we'll come on to? I played the piano. Not very well. My mum's a piano teacher. And I played the violin also very badly. I played the drum kit the recorders and sort of just had a go on anything I picked up. I've played the guitar before, again, just terribly, but yeah. <laughs> but the, really what's extraordinary is we've got to know, we have to know, how do you do it? How do you manage to imitate all these <laughs> different people from, I mean, you were Julie Andrews, you were Brittany or Liza Minnelli or Sh how did you do it? Thank you so much. Do you know what? You're the first person that's asked that question. <laughs> I watch a lot of YouTube and I listen to a huge amount of music and I'm a bit sort of pernickety about it usually so I'll record a tiny bit of Shirley Bassey and then I'll record my voice singing as her and then I'll listen and compare it and then repeat and try again and again and usually that helps me build a, a really good impression. I've been working on Shirley Bassey I think since I was about 21 so a long time. Some of them take years to come and others I can get straight away. And yeah. how do you choose them? It was so on the money. You so nailed when, when you started with Goldfinger. <gasps> oh, thank you. Do you know, I was so nervous. So when I look back at that, if I look back at that clip or listen back, I'm always going, no, that, one, that one's no good. No, oh, that was rubbish. we no, wouldn't that know wrong. that. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was not good enough for me, actually, that performance. I've never been so nervous in my life. I guess I, I choose really distinctive, famous voices, famous songs that everyone will know. So there's something for everybody in my act. I guess not everybody's going to get every voice, or if they do, then they're my best friend. Yeah, so whether you're 9 or 90, you'll recognise somebody in there. And when you decided that you wanted to go this way, is there a, I don't know, is there some kind of, how, how do you even start getting jobs? So I was at school and we were doing a show at school and there just happened to be an agent in the audience there. And she said, do you want to join my agency? And so I said yes and, and deferred my place to university and moved to London. So she put me up for auditions and I got a little pantomime in, in Euston. <laughs> the person that I was working with told me there was a production of Little Voice going on. And so I lied, <laughs> told a fib to the director and said, oh, I'm absolutely brilliant at impressions. Can I audition? 
And they said yes. And then I had to learn. <laughs> so I never, ever meant to be an impressionist. Wow. I think I, I meant to be a classical singer at one point, but uh, or maybe, a, you know, in musical theatre, but never an impressionist. It hadn't crossed my mind. Gosh. So, but you have the a, right a humor. And a, bit of <laughs> <laughs> and a lovely way of being, a, a smile. I think that goes such a long way. And it came oh, across. Oh, good. Oh, was, good. That's really good. Yeah, I'm quite a positive person. It feels so. right. Tell us what it's like to be on Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> it was, I mean, when, you, when the camera angle swings around and we can see what you can see, I feel yeah. nervous for you and I'm sitting in my sitting room. It was so intimidating. I've done a lot of gigs now. I've done some shows, not not any West End or big ones like that, but I've done some shows and I've put on my own show at the Edinburgh Festival and sometimes I've been lucky enough to have, you know, 300 people there. Sometimes only 3. But to perform in front of 2000 people, I've never done that, not with my act and it sounds like the most stupid thing to say, but Having the judges sit there, it was like being inside the telly. It was really weird. <laughs> Have you met them beforehand or do you just... No, no. And the other weird thing is when you're doing a gig, usually they'll they'll say, please welcome to the stage Jess Robinson. So the audience know you're coming on and, and you walk on with a bit of confidence and you know it's time to go on. Yes. But I was sort of was just left to sort of wander on onto this huge stage. <laughs> so you're not called it on. Was totally surreal. You you just have what how you have a number or you have how do you know it's your turn then? Well, I didn't really. Um, I was there from nine in the morning until nine in the evening. I went on about nine. Yeah, I think I went on about nine o'clock. And. They said, oh, you're going to meet Anton Deck now. So I thought, oh, good. We'll probably just be a little bit more filming and a little bit more of an interview because you're doing a lot of waiting all day, but also lots of interviews with people. So I thought, oh, it's my time to be interviewed with Anton Deck. And they said, you're right. How are you doing? All of that. And then they, they sort of just walked me to the stage and they said, are you ready? And I was mm. like, what now? I didn't like, it's just. Oh, you haven't totally collected yourself. Yeah, I didn't have time to collect myself. It was very odd, very, very odd. So I think maybe they do it on purpose so people aren't quite prepared when they walk on stage because it, you know, makes it more exciting and more nervy. And <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Did you have family with you or friends with you? I had my best friend with me, Jen, and that's it. <laughs> I didn't tell my mum I was doing it. Oh, they, they all watched <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I told her after I'd done it because I had to tell her about the whole experience. But yeah, and it's really real that when you you have no idea how you're going to do or how the judges are going to react, it's completely yeah. The thing that I was most nervous about and um, scared of was because I've been working at this since I was 18 and, you know, really trying to make it. And I've had some lovely highs and a few, you know, quite a few lows and, as well. I was so worried that Simon Cowell or, or one of the judges would turn around and go, you're rubbish. And then all of the work that I'd done would have been for nothing, it would have felt. And I would have had to rethink my whole profession. And maybe some of the professional people that I'd work with would think that I was rubbish as well. I was just felt like there was such a lot at stake. Oh, well, they didn't. And you were wonderful. Thank and, you. <laughs> and thank you for the behind the scenes tour. Where, where to now? Where to now? Well, if I get through to the semis, I would love to do Jessie J and um, Alicia Dixon. That would be really fun to, to imitate her. 
who else? Shakira, people like that. That would be great fun. And what sort of what sort of career path would can you see yourself going on to in the future? I would love to be able to do the live shows that I've been doing, but actually have lots of audience there. That would be lovely. I'd like to sell some tickets and be able to afford a band. That would be incredible. And I guess the ultimate dream is to have my own Saturday night TV entertainment show, a bit like the Marty Kane show or something like that, where I can do sketches and have guests on and sing and all of that sort of stuff. Impressionist Jess Robinson speaking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her time on Britain's Got Talent. You're listening to the best of The Jewish Views, 5777. And still to come on this edition, we'll hear a delicious sounding recipe from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And you'll also hear what happened when Clive and Kate were joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and lawyer Denise Lester on a recent schmooze to discuss observing Shabbat. But before that, around Pesach, what do you think of? What's the first thing that springs to your mind? Of course, it's got to be matzah. But what about the story of matzah and where it comes from and how it is actually made? Well, that is something that Sivos Hashem were hoping to reach out to people and educate them with, with their mobile matzah bakery. It was an initiative where they would go into different schools and different organisations to teach them how the process of making matzah actually works. Well, community editor Diana Toman caught up with Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem, and she started by asking Rabbi Simon to tell us a bit about how the process works. Children come in, and we start right from the beginning, going through the story of Pesach, and depending on the children and adults as well, wherever they're up to, we go through the story of Pesach. Then, to make the matzah, we go through the whole process of making matzah, starting from how wheat is cut, because all the flour in the shops, we assume that that is chametz, somehow it got wet and could have risen, so we cannot use any flour from any of the shops. We make our own flour. How do you make your own flour? Because I noticed that there was a little, there's a little bowl there with a scythe next to it. Right, so it takes about six months to grow wheat. So we grow the wheat through the winter, it's ready to harvest in the summer when the weather is dry and sunny in some places of the, in the world. And we harvest the wheat. We then need to thresh it to take out the wheat kernels. Then we winnow it. And again, the children do this with their hands or they blow into the bowl. Can you explain to me what winnowing is? It's such a lovely word. So winnowing is to remove the chaff from the wheat kernels using wind. So the farmer in ancient times would go outside and let the wind blow away the chaff. But in a classroom setting, the children come out and they blow into the bowl and the chaff goes flying all over the room and we're left with the wheat kernels in the bowl. And then? Then we take the wheat, we grind it with a millstone and the children have fun doing that. It's quite difficult because of the pressure of one stone over the other. Once we've ground up the wheat kernels into flour, we then use a sieve, we sift through the flour, so we've got the very fine flour. To make a matzah, we use only flour and water. We do not want the flour to get wet until we're ready to actually make the matzah. Because from when the flour and water come into contact together, we need to have the matzah ready, baked out of the oven within an 18 minute time period. Where does the water come from? The water for the hand-baked shmora matzah we take from a well or a spring. And we draw this water the evening beforehand to make sure it cools down. 
This idea of 18 minutes is only if you have cold water and cold flour. So therefore, we draw the water sunset time in the evening, leave it overnight to cool down. The next day we can then use this water. And the 18 minutes is crucial. This 18 minutes was established in Talmudic times about 2000 years ago. The rabbis did experiments with wheat flour and they said, if you use cold water and cold flour and bake your matzah in less than 18 minutes, it will not become chametz. In this classroom where we're standing at the moment, there is actually an oven, isn't there? Do you bring that oven with you? Yes, yeah, so we have a pizza oven, a commercial pizza oven, which we carry around with us. And in front of it is an eight foot by eight foot brick face. So it should look a little bit like a, a wood oven. We've got to the stage of grinding the flour and presumably then they have to roll it out? Yes, yeah, so before that, I explained that the flour that we grind, we do not use it for a few days because friction generates heat. So the flour that we've just produced is warm from the friction in the millstone. Ironically, the best millstone to use is a water mill because that moves slowly and it generates less heat in the flour. So the flour that's been ground, we leave it for a few days to cool down. The next stage is we have two separate rooms. One we store the flour, one we store the water and they kept very separate until we're ready to knead it together. Then we pour the flour and water together and then someone kneads it. How many of these demonstrations are you doing a week, Rabbi? Because this sounds like a full-time job. So we started before Purim, which is four weeks before Pesach. And then from Purim onwards, every day, either one, two, sometimes three, sometimes four in the day, could we do in the evenings as well for youth clubs or adults. So today we're in a school in Stamford Hill. The formal school is actually closed. And this is like a holiday scheme for the children, like a day camp for the children to get them out of their parents' hair just before Pesach. So they actually go home with their own matzah in a little packet? So they go home with their own matzah and a baker's hat printed on it. I made my own matzah. The only thing is, this matzah we make is a chomitz matzah. It's a model matzah bakery, so it's 100% chomitz. So some families find it a little bit challenging. They've just paid to clean their house and the kids bring home a chomitz matzah. Most families do not have this problem because generally the matzah gets consumed on the way home. I see. It never gets as far as the parents. No, this is a hot, fresh matzah. That's fantastic. How long has this wonderful bakery been actually in existence? When did you start it all? Sivas Hashem have been running these master bakeries for about 20 odd years. Have you? 20 years? 20 years. And many of the children that I met initially are now parents themselves and teachers themselves in schools. And a lot of these teachers are inviting me to their schools because they remembered how much they learned as a child when they were in school. And I just want to point something out. When the rabbis established the order of the Seder, they wanted it to be hands-on, not just someone getting up and giving a lecture. So you have to bite into Judaism. We eat the charoses, we eat the karpas, we eat the maror, we eat the matzah, we drink the wine, and children have an experience with all five senses at the Seder. And the programs that we run also are hands-on. The children actually have to roll up the sleeves and muck in and make their own matzah.
Oh, how much fun does that sound? It's not fair. I want to have a go. Anyone from Sivos Hashem listening, do let me know when you're next around and I might come along and make some matzah myself. That was community editor Diana Toman speaking to Rabbi Yossi Simon from Sivos Hashem about their mobile matzah bakery. You're listening to the best of the Jewish Views 5777. Still to come, we'll hear a delicious sounding recipe from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. But there's just time to remind you that we always like to hear from you on the Jewish Views. And although we might be playing out some of our best bits, do still feel free to keep in contact with us. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. You can go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Well, now it's time to hear what happened when Clive and Kate were joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and lawyer Denise Lester on a recent schmooze discussion. The subject for this one was observing Shabbat. And we join the discussion now where Clive has just asked Andy if it's the case that she observes Shabbat most weekends. I do. And I find that it's a way of relaxing and chilling out for the day. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do. I know that I I have to be there for 10 o'clock or whatever. And it, it's a way of just relaxing, basically, joining in with the service, singing. I just love it. I just love the Saturdays. I very rarely go on a Friday night, I have to say. But when I do go on a Friday night, it's a much smaller congregation. It's in the smaller hall. And again, it's very, very personal. It's it's just lovely. And Kate, love you clearly agree with that. I do. We I go to we observe Shabbat and we're Shoma Shabbat, so we're sort of more from the United Synagogue perspective. And Tito on on one hand you want to to make sure that you bring the people to Shabbat less than you bring Shabbat to the people, if you see what I mean. You want to but this whole Shabbat UK idea should really be a wonderful experiment, an idea to really show people what an oasis in the week Shabbat can be. No phone, no handbags, no money, no no ordinary weekday activities. And you focus on the spirituality and it should be beautiful. And does it really work? Yes. It really does work. I mean, you know, even practical things like leaving the house, I would never leave the house without my phone. I, I, mean, I couldn't even walk to, the, to my outside freezer without putting my phone in my pocket. And it, you just feel liberated and you shed this just weekday feeling is all I can describe it. No money or we walk. You know, I will stand and talk to a neighbour for 10 minutes. When would I ever do that on a Tuesday afternoon? Denise, do you, do you agree with all that? I do. And I think that the Shabbat UK initiative, it's now in its third, third year, year yeah. is absolutely wonderful. And certainly I've made two and in particular one special friendship which is now coming into our third year with someone who, like myself, was looking for the spirituality at the time. Shabbat to me is more complex, actually. I'm very conscious of it. I know that it's a day of rest. I'm very conscious of the sundown going down on Friday night and also the end of Shabbat. And I do feel it has a mystical feeling to it. Um, classically, there's the Shekhinah, um, Hashem's fem- feminine presence, God's feminine presence coming down. But it's more complicated for me. This is because I consider myself to be a struggling Jew. And because I'm single and I don't have that family dynamic to easily 
observe um, Shabbat whilst I will go to synagogue, to shul, and I definitely won't work wherever I can help it. That's my demarcation line. I also take it as a day of rest and attempt to sort of achieve some form of mindfulness. And that could involve going walking, for example, and rituals when I'm at home, such as reading the Jewish news <laughs> and just having, you know, and just having a, um, a nice, peaceful time. It's lovely what you're all saying, and I couldn't agree with you more. But in fact, I wonder how many of the people who actually come uh, next next month on the 11th and 12th of November and join in really take in what you're saying. Do they really think, ah, now I'm going to treat Shabbat properly? No. Or is it just an annual great fun? I think in a lot of situations it is great fun. And I, I'd like to take up the point that Denise made about because she's single, it doesn't have the family orientation. I'm on my own because I've been widowed. And my kids, they do their own thing. Neither of them are married. My son's still looking for somebody. <laughs> Just get that one in. And I don't necessarily see them on a Friday night for dinner because they're you know, they're tired and, you know, so I'm also on my own or I see friends or whatever on a Friday night. I tend to do the Saturday rather than the Friday night. I like candles on the Friday night, mm. obviously. But on the Saturday, you know, I go out to, I go to shul, I drive to shul, but I don't have a bag, I don't have my handbag, I don't have various things that I would normally have. It, it is different. But as far as Shabbat UK, I don't really know whether people... I think people maybe just treat it as fun. In a, does in it a matter, lot of though? Does that matter? No. Yes, I think it does, because the whole idea, surely, is to make so many of the people that in this country now who don't, who are Jewish but are not religiously Jewish, or very seldom. Mm. I mean, I was completely shocked, if I have to say, when I went into synagogue on Simhat Torah and Shemini Haggad said it, how empty the synagogue, mm. which when I was younger, was always full, was totally, well, not totally, but was quite empty. Yes, that is a... But going back to Shabbat UK, if it just reaches out a hand and a couple of people touch it and say, well... Let's see what this is about. I don't think you're going to get people who have who are completely not communicating or not involved in the community, a community Shabbat at all. You're not going to get them suddenly in one day to become completely Shabbat observant. What you may do is just create an inquisitive curiosity, just a moment of well, what that's all about then, eh? And to look into it. And then you never know where things could take. I think that the essence of Shabbat is the creation of a space in between the work and a space where we have, you could say, downtime, mindfulness, reflectiveness, some space where there's an elevated awareness. And also the, the initiative of Shabbat UK is to not only introduce but to enhance people's experience of Shabbat in a more spiritual sense. And I don't think it should just be a United Synagogue initiative or owned by a United Synagogue. Indeed, there are many different ways of observing Shabbat. And, it, you know, ultimately, we can't judge each, each to its own. And it's a step-by-step -step mystical progression. I mean, I'm, 
I, I'm very akin to the Chabad, the Lubavitch philosophy, where they embrace every Jew. And mm -hmm. if somebody comes into a synagogue on any Shabbat, not just uh, Shabbat UK, they should be made to feel welcome. And that doesn't matter where they are, which place, where they are. I couldn't agree with you more yeah, about that. Absolutely. You've reminded me, actually, and this is not, it, in a sense, a funny story, but this actually happened. There was a deeply religious man, sadly no longer with us, but he was a deeply religious man. He, would go to, he wouldn't even take a handkerchief with him to, to synagogue every Shabbat. And during the summer one year, he was a member of Lord's. And when he'd had his Shabbat lunch, he went to Lord's and he walked in. Because he was a member, all he had to do was show his membership card. And he went in and sat down and sat next to another member of the MCC and a member of his synagogue and said to him, would you mind going and buying me a coffee because it is Shabbat <laughs> and I, I can't buy one for myself. And I, I really think that that's making a mockery of it. And that's what worries me about these sort of things. Of course, classically, one orthodox um, Jew is not supposed to ask an orthodox... Uh, or any Jew. Or any Jew to do anything. In fact, as I was saying that, of course, any Jew. So there has been the concept of, of people who are not Jewish assisting from families. And in fact that has enhanced mutual awareness and respect. Certainly, I was having a, a very interesting conversation a long while ago with someone who lived in, uh, you know, in Golders Green in London who knew pretty much all of the laws mm. and ritual observance because she'd, she'd helped out. And it, it, it's actually quite wonderful for community relations, that mutual respect. Absolutely. And yes. just, just, just to say... In my street where I live, there's a lot of very religious, very uh, Shabbat observant people. The delivery guys who, you know, you never quite know when your parcel's going to be delivered. They, they have frequently, they knock on the door and we open the door and then very often they look up, see the mezuzah, look at us and then say, and give it to us. And, we, and they'll say, do you, want, do you want me to sign for you? The postman does it. All the local delivery guys do it. I think it's incredibly thoughtful and respectful. We've had the postman in to help light a hob that, that had gone out. Mm. And it's lovely, and we, you know, we we are very respectful back, and it's a, it works beautifully for community. That's amazing. Mm. You know, I, I've never heard of that. Not <laughs> since, you know, sort of the year dot when you yeah, used to have, uh, to put it bluntly, Shabbat guy who used to come in and light, the, you know, mm. put your lights on and do everything else. Can we talk, though, about the Shabbat candles? Because for me, if I light those, when I light those, they're particularly meaningful. And I'm conscious that Clive is surrounded by three, three, well, certainly two lovely ladies here this evening. Three, <laughs> certainly three. And there is a centrality to that. It doesn't matter if you're, uh, one's male or female. To light the candles, one to guard and one to observe, brings down that elevated sense of Hashem's presence. And it's very special. For me, I, I certainly sense yeah. a shift I, in the energy in the I room. I think you're absolutely right about that. I know a most delightful woman. She's 96 years old. You wouldn't believe it. But now she can... Her family have moved away, they're less religious and all the rest of it. But every Friday night she says what is so important to her, and there's nobody there with her anymore. On the Friday night she lights her candles and she says, oh. now I really feel that I've started a proper Shabbat and it will mm. be there. And she, she says that 
the the candles are very special. And it's also what's are. in your own mind as well, because you know you can just go light a couple of tea lights and put them, you know, in front of the mm. fireplace. And there is no presence in the room. There is no shift. So much of the the mental shift, the energy that changes, whatever you, you call it, and I feel that very much too when I when I light the candles. It's the one time in the week where I sort of look inwards and think of, I have a quick burst of my own ritual, mm. if you like, of all the people that are missing from my life, whether grandmothers and grandfathers mm. and, and aunts and uncles. And at that moment, I feel that they will never be gone because I bring them back down and I think about them. Whereas when I was lighting a couple of candles one day, a couple of tea lights, didn't even think about it twice. I was kind of chatting while I was doing them and using my, my special little lighty thing. And because I didn't have the the mental kind of link with it, I think that yes. the two need to be. You have to, you have concentrate. to be concentrating. That's the word. You have to be concentrating. Yeah. And classically, yeah. and from a mystical Hasidic perspective, you do indeed bring your ancestors down. In fact, there are those who are from that. that will bring. Yeah, yeah. You know, at that point, you're bringing them mm. them down. There are those that are from will also light other candles for you know other people or whatever. But you are actually bringing them down. So there is that spiritual link. We have that whole mystical link to our ancestors that runs through our contextual stuff when we pray. That's fantastic, Janice, what you're saying. <laughs> I find that quite very moving. Mm. And I, I wonder if in November when they have these special Shabbats, Shabbats is not really, you know what I mean, yeah. um, when they have these special things, are they really going to give that feeling, which is what, it, what they should do to all these people who don't usually go to synagogue on Shabbat? Well, I'm going to I'm going to say definitely yes. The first Shabbat UK that I went to my synagogue joined with St John's Wood, and we had an uh, I'm a South Hampstead United member, and we had a fantastic time. And I'm going to say that I made made on that day one particular special friendship, a very dear friend of mine who. I'd say, like myself, lives very much in a modern world, but wanted to touch into the mysticism. There was definitely a mysticism at play. And certainly last year, it was very, very special. And the Friday night hospitality that I enjoyed resulted in another lovely friendship. So, you know, deep, meaningful friendships can come out of a Shabbat meal or Shabbat table. And, it, you know, it doesn't only needs to be the big push of Shabbat UK. It's the other friendships as well. Yeah. It is all about making connections. I'm, what I really what's... think that surely Shabbat UK shouldn't just be the United Synagogues, though, should it? Absolutely. It should be the Spanish and Portuguese. But they did say that. In, oh, he in, did. He definitely said... And the Reform. And the, and and the, the Reform, liberal. because that and had the reform, been... And the Liberal and the Mazorti. And, and they do, they do celebrate yeah. Shabbats. I mean, you know, of Part course... Of you know, but this is, I think that um, synagogal movements are like football teams and individual football teams, shawls as well. And this is not just the exclusivity of the United Synagogue, far from it. I've certainly been into other synagogues where I've been made to feel incredibly welcome on Shabbat. So, you know, it's a meaningful experience and it is however you celebrate it, wherever you celebrate it. You know, it is meaning it is meaningful, and there are those as well that can't travel to shul but still celebrate it. I'm not entirely sure why, but whenever people find out that I do go to shul on Shabbat, pretty much without fail most weekends, they're always really surprised by it. And I don't know whether or not that's because people think I don't live up to the stereotype of someone who's religious enough to want to go to shul, but. I just find it unusual that there's almost not one person without exception who doesn't react in a way as if to say, oh, really? 
Anyway, fascinating conversation all the same. Thank you very much to our Schmooze team there and to our guests from the Schmooze. They were community volunteer Andy Lucas and lawyer Denise Lester. Well, now it's time to get a delicious recipe from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. What have you got for us this week, Denise? Sukkot recipes all are about stuffing vegetables because it's harvest time. And my recipe is just that. It's stuffed squash with fig jam. It takes about 30 minutes to make and cooking time is about an hour and 40 minutes and serves six people. It is made with six small round squash like the acorn ones, six cloves of garlic, two large carrots peeled and finely grated, two onions peeled and finely chopped, bunch of fresh oregano and fresh thyme, leaves only, and a tin of artichoke hearts drained and chopped, zest of one lemon, and seasoning with salt and ground black pepper, 60 grams of unsalted cashew nuts. Now it is made with fig jam, and the jam is really very quick. 30 grams of fresh or dried figs, stalks removed, two tablespoons of balsamic vinegar and one tablespoon of maple syrup or date syrup. So to make it, preheat the oven 150 degrees centigrade or gas mark 2. Line a baking tray with baking parchment paper. And now what you're going to do is make a hole in the centre of your squash or round squash. Scoop out the flesh which you need to discard. And then what you're going to do is heat the oil, sorted the onions, garlic, carrots, oregano and thyme for about five minutes and add the other ingredients which is the artichokes, lemon zest, salt, pepper, cashew nuts and stir well. Cook for about five minutes and then stuff the squash shells with this very delicious filling and return to the oven for about 20 minutes. So while that is cooking you can make your fig jam. So chop your figs and put in a saucepan with the balsamic vinegar syrup and two tablespoons of water. Simmer for 10 minutes until the figs become soft and sticky. And just serve this beautiful stuffed squash dish with a dollop of fig jam. Garnish with sprinkling of thyme leaves and oregano leaves. What a lovely, tasty vegetarian dish this is. Perfect for Sukkot. Oh, lovely. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, thank you very much indeed for that delicious sounding recipe. And don't forget that if you would like more information on that recipe or indeed any of Denise's others, then please do go to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. And that's it for this particular look back of the best of the Jewish views from 5777. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests. We have to thank Rebecca Steinfeld talking about civil partnerships for heterosexual couples, to Jess Robinson talking to us about her appearance on Britain's Got Talent, Rabbi Yossi Simon talking about his mobile matzah bakery from Sivos Hashem. Thank you very much to our schmooze team and of course to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips and to you at home for listening. And we must and forget the team, including our producer, Tony Honickberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next week where we will continue our look back over the best bits of 5777. But until then, goodbye. <laughs>